So the advice that I would give to people is try to have multiple experiences and don't be wedded to an idea of yourself or your past that you may have at 17 and, and allow yourself to be surprised by your fit. Welcome to another episode of In Your Best Interest, your personal finance podcast. I'm Stephanie Lung, co-CEO at Stash Away. And today we're with our host, Philippe Buda, and our guest, Julia Rayskin. Julia is the Asia-Pacific Head of Markets at City, And in this episode, we hear the fascinating story of how she moved from the Soviet Union to the U.S. as a teenager and how she carved out a successful career in finance. Enjoy the episode and I'll hand you over to Philippe. Good, good. But cool. hey, let's, let's then just get into it, I think. Um, and really what we always like to do with all of our guests is actually talk a little bit more about the upbringing, right? And in kind of how we got onto this journey uh, that is life, right? And with a particular lens always looking also at personal finances, right? And you being uh, a very, very established in the, in the, in the financial world, I want to like, I'd like to take it back a little bit in the beginning because our listeners would like to get to know you. So what, what was life growing up for you? As it happens, I've been going over my background quite a lot lately uh, with my own children, um, given some of the geopolitical events. I grew up in the Soviet Union, so, uh, so I think we thought very differently about finances. And, but, you know, I, I do remember long lines. I remember long lines and cold winters for basic groceries, I remember, um, you know, how hard my parents had to work to basically kind of find food for the table. And, you know, my parents were engineers. They both had, you know, good jobs, really good educations. And, and even despite that, I think, you know, making sure the kids were fed fairly nutritious food was, was actually a struggle for what was essentially a middle-class family. Um, and, You know, again, you know, I left the Soviet Union when I was 13 when it was just collapsing. And I'm going to tell you a really terrible story. But I remember not getting a lot of Western news, which I think is the situation in, in, in Russia now. But when I did, there was sort of like a segment about a supermarket in, in the U.S. And there were these full shelves of strawberries and all of this fruit um, in the middle of the winter. You know, for me, I think that was the promise and that was the opportunity. It was about being able to have strawberries in January. And obviously, you know, it was about thinking what you wanted to think, making choices, having the freedom and having the opportunity. But in some ways, a lot of that could be boiled down to just that, you know, being able to walk into a supermarket and choose what you want to eat on the day. Yeah, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time really reflecting on that. But as I talk to my own children now about what's happening there, That is what I think about, too. Well, what age are your children now? Uh, well, my eldest is exactly the age I was when I left. So okay, she's yeah. 13, um, and I have a 12-year-old and a, and a 9-year-old boy, so two girls and a boy. My husband's family comes from India, and they have you know, been there and experienced poverty, but I think they really don't think about that as part of their world. And so one of the things that I, you know, I think has motivated me and I hope that they understand is, is it is part of our family. It's, it's part of our story and part of our family. And we need to think about that. No, I think it's super interesting because I had, I had this discussion as well the, the other day. My mom grew up in Eastern Germany, 
right? My dad in Western Germany, but my mom grew up in Eastern Germany. They fled, um, I think, in 85 or something. But she was five. Her, her sister was uh, 15, right? And this is the same story you just told. Long lines. You don't know when, what food, right? Uh, the shelves were empty. And it's, it's, it's very interesting because we had this discussion, right? Because I was actually over in, uh, in Germany um, just when the, this war started a few weeks ago and people were pretty scared. Like uh, compared to now I'm back in the US and here it's like, yeah, it's, it's there, but it's far away, right? Still, still kind of far away. And in Europe, it's, it's, it's so much closer. When you think about it, I was there, we were in Munich, it's 500 kilometers away, right? It's just right there. Yeah. It's like less than me driving to Seattle from Portland. So Exactly, exactly. I mean, Europe is so compact. And I think the memory of World War II and the memory of Cold War is really yeah. real. Right. Yeah. And 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 it just shows you I think we've we've started taking for granted that this sort of capitalist system that we've built is sort of all encompassing and it doesn't need protecting. And and, you know, and, 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 and that's what I'm sort of saying, like, you know, if, you, if, we, if I speak to my relatives in Russia, it's crazy how fine the line is between sort of prosperity and poverty and turning the clock back. And, and I think it just makes people really, I think, realize that, you know, all of these topics that, you know, we think about in terms of freedom, prosperity, you know, supporting people's economic choices, and democratic choices, you know, we need to protect that. I mean, it's it's yeah. fragile. No, it is super fragile. But we can, and I, I, I want to get into this a little bit later because we talk about talking about investments and kind of the investment landscape as well a little bit. Um, but I want to take it back a little step. So 13 years old, you guys leave um, the Soviet Union at the time. Where did you go? I mean, in order to leave the Soviet Union, you had to give up your you, your Russian pass, your Soviet passports. So we were stateless people, and via Austria and Italy, uh, you know, we ended up in in New Jersey, and uh, that's a fascinating story in and of itself about you know how a chance encounter with the with a family in Moscow, um, you know, essentially made them family to us. My family is Jewish, and so we land in New Jersey. You know, so I'm I go from sort of being a in Soviet Moscow. And then I end up in a suburban New Jersey school, which is, as, as you say, I mean, it's it's far away <laughs> from where well, and I it's came what, from. It's what you saw in that TV commercial, right? Or like in that on that uh, one Western thing you saw, right? You All of a sudden you were in the Big Apple. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was just crazy. And, you know, we landed, I, and I think it was, it was actually a, a, a TWA flight. Obviously, that airline doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And you saw these New York police officers enter the plane. And yeah, it was it was like being in a movie, really. I, I think that was immediately clear that even, you know, an average kid in an average suburban school just had so much more at their fingertips. So 13-year-old Julia has moved from the Soviet Union to a suburban school in New Jersey. Next she tells us about her first job in the U.S. and the roundabout route she took to eventually end up in finance. When you got to the U.S., now you're 14, 15 years old, right? Uh, going to high school in the U.S. Uh, just before college. Uh, any, any specific, obviously that you already mentioned some of those, you know, money moments you probably had, but any like moments that stuck with you? Is it, you know, how to manage your um, allowance or maybe you had a job already in, in, yeah, in high school? What was kind of like your first, that stuck with me. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and, 
Look, I again, you I mean, what does every teen want? Every teen wants to fit in. And, you know, you have your parents who are, like, struggling to find jobs. They don't really have any money. They're sort of weird and foreign and drive a crappy car. And and and, and, and what do you want as a teen? You, you want to be cool, right? So that was the question I needed to address first. And so I had, I, you know, I, I had a part-time job. And actually, ultimately, I had a full-time job. And I always say, you know, sometimes inefficiency is a really great thing. So, so the part-time job, I started working a couple of afternoons a week doing payroll for a friend's company. Because, I was, you know, look, most Eastern European kids are pretty good at math. I was pretty good at math, so I could do some of the accounts. So I did, you know, accounts payable and receivables for minimum wage a few afternoons a week. Um, for a textile company that was owned by friends of uh, friends of my family, people who brought us to the U.S. and and I really enjoyed that because you know it generated my own income. And then I I you know it's so funny how to some maybe look some of the worst businesses are good opportunities for young employees because there was a furniture store um, just at the end of our road. And the furniture store is not super successful, but they were looking for somebody who would sit and, and kind of answer inquiries about, uh, you know, what, whether, whether they had a particular sofa in stock. And because it wasn't a very busy store, the inquiries were not very frequent, and I would just go into the computer and check the inventory. Um, but the great thing about it is that I could do that almost for 30 hours a week, and I would just bring my homework there. I would sit there and do my homework. And... Um, and and end up, you know, earning almost like a full-time wage. I mean, it was minimum wage. Obviously, jobs like that don't exist anymore um, because I think, you know, the world has become way more efficient and you yeah. don't really need somebody sitting around um, with, with downtime. But for a, a high school student, it was pretty awesome. And, and so I, you know, I think at that point I realized that, you know, having my own income was very important to me. So, okay, so that's great. So you get your first job, you know, uh, always working already, uh, you know, since, since since high school. That's a pretty impressive resume. And we're going to get into the finance part in a minute. But let me ask you a quick question. You get your bachelor's degree from Harvard University. Then you go to Oxford and uh, you have a doctorate also in law. How do you end up then in finance with that background? <laughs> That's a great question. In fact, you know, I recently went to my university reunion and everyone said to me, they were like, you're in finance. That's like the last place we thought we would find you. And, and you know, and they're right. So when I was in university, as I said, I've always had a big passion for science. Uh, my parents were engineers. My grandparents in that generation were doctors. So I sort of always assumed that I would actually be a doctor and I um, you know, I, I did a lot of work in, in pre-med, worked in a lot of labs, did, did, did work in sort of medical anthropology, kind of internationally. So that was always the field that I um, thought I would pursue. And I got pretty far away from finance, honestly. I, I just hadn't imagined it. But I keep coming back to the theme of needing to make my own way in life. Um, and so my sister, as it happens, you know, studied in New York, and, and, and she was working in finance, and she said to me, she said, well, you know, in order for you to continue with your science, why don't you do a couple of internships in the summers in, um, in sort of banks or financial institutions, because, you know, that can help you fund yourself during the year that you're studying, so it's probably like the fastest way you can So this was in between, this. Uh, in, in, that was in between uh, in the your summers. bachelor's program? 
Yeah. Yeah, this was in the summers during my bachelor's program. So, so whatever I was doing to pursue my science, I'd always sort of try to at least do part of the summer uh, an internship in, in financial markets with the help of my sister, to be honest. A lot of them were, you know, kind of friends of their, of hers subcontracting me at the time. I think the world was a little simpler. Um, and so I've always had exposure to, to financial markets, but I, I have to be honest with you, I never really treated it as a potential profession. I just thought this was a way I could sort of earn money fairly quickly in order to do the things I really wanted to do. Um, and then, you know, part way, I, I, I have to tell you, I mean, it's a bit strange that I uh, studied pre-med, but ended up with a doctorate in law. Um, it's interesting, and it's, hard, it's a horrible thing to say, but at some point I had a conversation with myself, and I said, you know, do I actually like hospitals? Do I actually like, you know, the idea of, of, of being a, a healer? Do I, can, I, can I handle emotionally kind of helping people at their worst? And, and the answer was not really. I mean, I, I think, you know, what I found is that I'm a pretty cerebral person. I, I love interacting with people when they're at their best. I, I love ideas. I love kind of the, the, the world of international relations, politics, uh, thought leadership and, and, and the law. And so I said, well, what, wh why did I think about medicine and science? What is it that I liked about it? And I sort of thought, well, you know, I like the method. I like the scientific method. I like the analysis. I like the problem solving. I like that idea of investigation. And so I ended up gravitating toward law because actually you do a lot of that in a legal process. Right. In, in, you know, how do you take a, a big idea of, of kind of legislation and implement it at the level of companies, transactions and individuals? And that's really how I, I ended up in law. And what I was uh, doing that, two things I realized, um, <laughs> the first is that you know, having a career in academia was a little lonely. You know, I'm a reasonably social person, I think. And I found that after two years of kind of writing my doctoral thesis by myself, I was kind of beginning to talk to walls a little bit. <laughs> and then the other, um, the other issue about law that I found is that law in some ways interprets the actions of business. And so when I was writing my doctoral th thesis, I was looking at a bunch of businesses. I was looking at legal practice. Um, and I sort of thought, well, I love the analysis, but couldn't I be on the front line? Couldn't I be the one driving the transactions rather than sort of unpacking them and analyzing them? And, and couldn't that analysis be applied to the, you know, the business field itself rather than to the framework? I, does that make sense, Philip? Does, Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so then... Um, it, it turned out that uh, the scholarship that I, that I was on, a few of the alumni were working at Lehman Brothers, um, and Lehman Brothers at the time had a number of investments in kind of oil exploration fields in Siberia and a few other places where kind of my, my background, so speaking Russian, having a legal background, um, was really helpful in order to try to recover 
some of the, the, the funds. And so Lehman asked me to, to come and actually work part-time. I worked as a consultant. Again, and you, you're getting a theme of my all my side gigs. Yeah, um, absolutely. We see you always, but that's good <laughs> for networking too. You kind of did a little bit of everything, right? So it's, it's great. It, exactly. You have a huge amount of exposure. Yeah. You kind of help your, you know, supplement your meager graduate school uh, earnings. Um, and I think, you, you, you know, you're exposed to different ideas, right? To people and ideas. And so as I, as I kind of started working as a consultant for Lehman, they said, well, but, you know, actually, I think we could use you on the business side. And weirdly, you know, I loved it. I, I much preferred working in the world of finance in, in, in Europe. Honestly, I think it was a lot more international, maybe a little bit more intellectual. I mean, not to, to offend any of our U.S. colleagues, but I think, you know, finance in the U.S. is a highway. It's like a massive highway. Tons of money flows through. It's incredibly powerful as we're seeing play out, you know, in yep. some of the, you know, Russian sanctions. It's it's kind of finance in, in, in the U.S. is kind of like awe-inspiring, but it's a super highway. I think in Europe, it's a little bit more of a scenic road. Um, and so I like that. I like the fact that people had different backgrounds, that I think a lot of, you know, Lehman in particular at the time was a little bit more like a startup-y culture. I mean, our CEO was 35 years old. I turned up. You had ideas. I mean, look, in the end, it turned out that not everything worked out. But, but I love the atmosphere. And I love the fact that, you know, there was a, a, an international and slightly complicated component to the problems I was looking at. And that's really how the career in finance began. And, and I thought, you know, like the, the people were clever and, 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 and it, it just felt like we were at the kind of the start of something at the time. This was, I guess, late 90s, early 2000s. Julia's journey from medicine to law to finance shows us that sometimes Life doesn't go as planned. We just have to be open to carving out our own paths. Next, we asked Julia what she did with her first paycheck and what advice she has for those of you wanting to pursue a similar career in finance. No, it's super. It's not super interesting uh, way you got into finance. I, I, I'm, 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 it's, I'm very intrigued, and I think a lot of the listeners will be as well. So now you you, you get uh, into finance, you get a full time job. Uh, Lehman takes you over from that part time gig, right? Um, mm -hmm. Do you still remember what you did with your first paycheck, like real one, like full time paycheck? I paid off my student loans. It's terrible and boring. I didn't buy any clothes. Hey, this is a personal finance Ferrari. podcast. So that's actually a really yeah, good answer. <laughs> I paid off the entire, my entire paycheck went to my student loans. But it was amazingly liberating Yes, to just write imagine. one check and be free. Yes. And I, and I think that everyone gives a different answer to this topic, but uh, it's always very interesting because uh, I think this is your first personal financial planning move, right? Be liberated, have no more debt uh, in terms of, uh, you know, you can start out fresh now. Then as the career progresses, I, I want to get back to the personal finances here in a minute, because that's going to be the rest of the conversation, but really quickly still. Now you're in an investment bank. I know you spend time on the trading floor, which probably at the time too, was still very male dominated, right? Loud, it was male. There was a lot of phone slamming and a lot of cursing. It's kind of fun. It was different. It's like an anthropological experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how, how did you, how did you, how did you make it through that? And like, what was kind of like that experience like, especially for people looking 
um, you know, looking, you know, up to you and kind of uh, as a, as a woman wanting to get into this business, what, what would you say? Yeah, you know, and you're not going to like this answer, but I didn't think about it very hard and very much. I, as, as I said, I, I, I like the problems I was looking at. Yeah. I do think at, at, at that level, at a junior level, you know, believe it or not, we haven't made a ton of progress since then, but believe it or not, there is a lot of effort to get women onto trading floors even over 20 years ago. Um, and so at a junior level, there were actually quite a lot of, uh, you know, women in my cohort Women really did tend to drop out, you know, when we get toward childbearing age. And we could talk a little bit about that. But, um, but, but at the start, there were actually quite a few women. I did think the culture and the trading floor was so different from the academic world that I was used to that I almost observed it the way you would observe a safari. <laughs> that's, uh, that's probably not a, a super apt analogy, but I sort of. I don't know. I just thought it was really interesting to see the energy. I thought it was kind of crazy that people would come in and really not know how their day would turn out, you know, and yeah. for some people it would be the beginning of a crazy bull run in it and a massive career. And for some of them, it would be the end. I just hadn't experienced that kind of volatility before. Because um, as I said, you know, I grew up in a planned economy and then went to a closest thing to a planned economy, which is academia, right? So I yeah. think for me, that sense of, again, I keep coming back to the, the, the idea of freedom and opportunity and just this unbounded space was what I took away from that trading floor, you know? And, um, and I didn't know, I mean, again, I, I really didn't know it would be for me. Yeah, no, I think I think you made some good points. I think I had the same experience. I think, you know, when when I got to um, State Street uh, in the structural products department, uh, I did an internship uh, during college as well, always in the summer, right? And when yeah. when you do these internships, you also realize like what you learn in school, and then they just say, yeah, we don't care. We teach you when you get here. We just want the smartest people. And there were like people on the team and first year analysts. There were um, history majors, right? And uh, all kinds of different majors and barely anything that I learned in school studying even finance, uh, we actually used, uh, or like, you know, it was so different and so fast. And it was really, like you said, it's like you said this, I like the analogy of a safari. It was very interesting. It was <laughs> very, very interesting, but, but also good for listeners to know, right? Because one of the last questions I have on the topic of kind of that, that, you know, the finance field and you being in it is, now that you've been there for so long and had such a successful career, is there any advice you'd give someone wanting to pursue a similar career to yours? And I guess the one advice that I would do give to people, and I say this in every relationship, is learn about yourself, know yourself, listen to yourself. Because as I said, I, I you know, I clearly tried most of the major professions. Yep. And it didn't stick. And it was just as much of a surprise to me that I would land in a home in this safari, you know, because this is not where I started on my journey. So the advice that I would give to people is try to have multiple experiences and don't be wedded to an idea of yourself or your past that you may have at 17 because I honestly didn't even know that this kind of a career existed, right? I mean, I don't come from a financial family. I didn't have much exposure. Um, 
and and allow yourself to be surprised by you know your fit and you know maybe in my head I was setting out on a journey to an operating theater and ended up on a journey here but every time I ask myself would I be happy somewhere else I I really can't say that I would and that's why I'm here yeah. you know oh, I think that's awesome yeah and 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 if you think about it, you, you're very academic, right? You, you've done everything. You have a doctorate. Um, uh, you've done the whole shebang when it comes to university, right? And academia. What would you say as a uh, you know hiring manager to people wanting to break into this banking in, in general? What what are some of the skills that you look into? Uh, yeah, into people before before they would be hired. So that they can kind of like have a little yeah. Think well, about look, I think themselves. it's a great question, and I have to be honest with Philip. I don't always agree with our recruiting department uh, on this topic, <laughs> so uh, I hope you will forgive me. Um, no, what I what I would say is some of the most successful people that I know in this industry um, do not have a background in finance, um, mm -hmm. do not even have a background, as you say, in in mathematics. Um, Look, I think it's getting a little harder as the field is becoming more and more quantitative. I think having numeracy is helpful. Uh, but I think what has helped me is, I would say, a a different approach, right? I mean, and, and this sort of takes us to, to I think, the, the crux of what you're going to say, which is, you know, personal finance is ultimately about making money. And it's very hard to make money the same way everybody else makes money. Yep. Uh, and the best way to find an alternative path is to actually have a different set of eyes, a different set of background, something that comes naturally to you that just differentiates you from everybody else. And so what I would say is what I look for in, in our grads are people who are passionate, ambitious, curious, can demonstrate a desire for learning and a kind of general intellectual aptitude Because I think as we move forward and, and, you know, what matters in finance really changes, right? Maybe in the past it was more relationship driven and then it kind of we moved into kind of quantitative modeling and, you know, momentum and all of these sort of different factors. We moved into a real quantitative age of finance and, and I think we, we could be entering almost like a post-data um, mm -hmm. age where, you know, again, we could get back to you know, fundamentals, what makes companies succeed over the long term, right? Sort of the, you, you know, your Berkshire Hathaway, your value investing kind of premise, you know, what is a good company over the long term? And so as, as the skills required to succeed change, I think what is really important is intellectual agility and the ability to change with the market. Um, and, and that's not necessarily about a set of economics or financial math tools. That's a lot more, as I said, about either bringing a different viewpoint or just demonstrating a certain amount of intellectual agility and ability to adjust to different environments. That's an interesting point. And I agree that intellectual agility and just having the ability to adapt to a changing environment is very important, not just in finance, but in any profession you choose. Up next, Julia shares how she thinks about personal finance in her daily life, in her career choices, and with her children. 
Yeah, no, thank you. And I think you made the great uh, jump off there, right? Uh, you already mentioned we do want to talk about personal finance on this podcast. So my question yeah. actually goes a little bit into how do you, as a family, manage your money and how did you get there? Because obviously, you know, there are key changes in per people's financial lives. You have start to have children, right? You start out and you paid off your, your student loan. So that was the first step in your personal finance journey. What came after this? Did you immediately start investing by yourself even before your husband? What was kind of that, that thinking behind it as well? And then share that story uh, along the way, maybe. Well, yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I do think, you know, it's been really helpful. First of all, I think, you know, having a, a, a partner and making common decisions is, is very important. Uh, and I think just as it's important in life and in marriage, it's very important in, in, in finance. We didn't sit down and say how we're going to financially plan our life together. Sorry, I mean, you know, we're not that dry. But I think we started, I guess, you know, a little bit like when you kind of enter a marriage or relationship, you think, well, what's the destination? You know, when we look back at this, what will look like a great life to us? Is it going to be, you know, starting your own venture, your own company? Is it going to be, uh, you know, working forever? Is it going to be kind of financial security? And, and you know, the funny thing that I, I said to my husband at the time, and I, and I really insist on this, and this is going to sound very silly to you, is... Um, where I started this conversation is I said, I had a really happy childhood because I never thought about money. Mm -hmm. uh, just, it wasn't, it wasn't a factor. And what I said to him is I want to have the kind of life where I don't have to think about money. I don't want to make decisions about what school to send my kids to or what doctor to have an oper you know, an operation with or whether I can have an operation or not, or whether, you know, I can see my parents. I don't want money to be a constraint in my life. Having said that, that I yeah. also don't want to give up our family life for money. And it's a hard balance, right? Yeah. Um, I think it is a very hard balance because I think we also have to realize, you know, for every story of incredible success, there is a level of commitment that quite often makes let's say being a good parent or not good parent, a present parent, pretty tough, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to really have it all. And I think you have to think about some of these trade-offs. So the reason I kind of like the career in this field is because I said to my husband, I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to work for a long time. I mean, I like working as long as I get the freedom to do what I do. I don't want to think long-term about money as the driver and decision-making. And I'd like to have kids. Um, I'd like to have kids and A, being able to afford everything they need, but also have the time to spend with them. And I think these honestly have been the guiding principles of our financial planning. Um, and anytime we kind of make decisions um, about, you know, whether to buy a house or not, or how much to have of our portfolio in sort of liquid securities versus more illiquid, higher risk products, Whenever we think about that, I think that's the lens we look at. You know, is it getting us closer toward our long-term goal? Um, does this allow us to, you know, not spend too much time on worrying about this, you know, investment and, and really focus a little bit more on our family? And, and you know, is this something that's going to kind of 
tie us up so much for such a big chunk of our, you know, net worth that it might endanger some of the, the sort of the, the goals that we have. And, and I, I really do think we think about things this way. And I, I like it because what, what it really also shows is that you have an open communication about it. And I think that is so important because I, I was doing financial planning and estate planning work uh, also at Morgan Stanley. And how many people you, you see uh, not talk to each other about their personal finances, right? Where only one person shows up, one is in charge and not talking to the other. I think that's what I always try to keep uh, preach to everyone is just having that open communication, talk about goals, right? And then how do you get to these goals automatically then come back to that personal finance questions and every, every kind of move you make in that way is towards these goals, right? In a way, and I think you, you, you strike in a really important point, and, and I don't want to sort of gender stereotype anyone here, but I have found that particularly for women and, 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 and girls, a lot, a lot of the women I speak with, and to some extent even me, like a lot of women maybe don't have access or don't have as active an interest in, in finances. It's really important that they be a part of it. Um, and it's very important for me that I teach my girls that the choices that they are making in life, they need to think about, well, are those choices going to position them um, for the kind of goals that they have financially? I mean, I, it's, I guess, sorry, the other way around, like if they choose a profession, is that profession going to give them the kind of opportunities they envisage for their personal life? And I think finance has to come into it. I, I really do. And, Many people don't love the topic, but I certainly feel that we, we have to address it. And so even like, I know it sounds really sort of petty, but, you know, one of the things that I do in my roles, when I think about roles in financial markets, I always say, you know, well, how much does this job pay? Um, yeah. Because, of course, it's incredibly important to me that the job is interesting, which is I wouldn't have the conversation in the first place if it wasn't interesting. And I'm privileged to be in a position to be a bit choosy. But I think it's also important to say, hey, you know, is the content of the job consistent with my financial goals? I think that's yeah. an okay way to think about life. And sometimes we think of it as a trade-off, right? Sometimes we think about passion as a trade-off versus, you know, finance. And, and I think we need to maybe stop doing that a little bit or at least bring that practicality into the conversation. No, I like that approach a lot. Uh, and thank you for sharing this. I, you, you already uh, touched on, on, on your children a little bit and, and you know, kind of what you're trying to, uh, you know, the values you try to give them when it comes to this. But is there any way, you know, listeners, uh, you know, uh, parents on, on our show that you can maybe share a little bit of your strategy? You know, your kids are 13, um, 12 and nine now. How are you talking to your kids about finance? Because you are now also in the situation, you know, where uh, you, know, you have a very good job, right? They can probably go to very nice schools. They can, um, you know, go to nice restaurants and things like that. So they grow maybe up also in a much, 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 much different environment than you did. So how, how, do, you, how do you make sure they understand the topic of finance? Yeah, thanks for that question. And, you know, I, I'm looking for advice as much as I'm doling it out. But let me tell you about what we, we have done. I mean, I think the first is, as I said to you, it's, it's hard for my kids to understand what privilege means um, because the, in reality, their, their daily lives have no hardship. 
Um, and so one of the things that I think the first thing that we do is try to expose them to different experiences of people who are, you know, ha have different means. And, and, and frankly, time they spend in, in rural India uh, with their own family, right? It's not other people's uh, family, but, you know, they see, they see poverty. Um, they, 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 they see unemployment, they see financial difficulty, uh, firsthand. And I think it sort of, I think makes them realize that a big element of financial success is luck and an accident of birth and sort of learning to value that and learning to treat that responsibly is something we really do try to instill. And I think, you know, they, of course, also are involved in some of the charity work that, that, that we ourselves do in some of the organizations supporting, you know, underprivileged communities. But I, but I think feeling that story in their own lives, in their own families, is, is a start of understanding the power uh, of, of, of finance and, and independence. And the second thing that we do is I think what every kind of immigrant or every parent says is ultimately your future are your skills. So you've got to study hard and make sure that, you know, you've got this brain and you've got to work at it and you've got to fill it with things that are going to be useful. And so for our kids, it's math, it's science. They all speak four languages. We may be in the world of machines, but right now it's a human world. So they need to learn how to be human and build trust, build relationships and build those skills. So really the, the blocking and tackling of parenting, I think, is really important to ensuring your children's financial success. Our job is to put things into them as opposed to give things to them. Yeah. Um, and that's what they can rely on, right? I mean, my view is that, you know, once you're educated, you're on your own. So, so really taking ownership of their own skills is important. And then I would say they do have financial responsibilities. Um, in part, those are linked to, um, you know, their free time. So, for instance, my my girls um, do a lot of like reselling um, pre-owned clothing and shoes that my uh, friends have, and then they um, they 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 sell it on Carousel, which is a little bit like an Etsy uh, or yeah. you know that that kind of platform. And and so for that, the bulk of the uh, of the money they give to the charity that they're supporting, but they get to keep some of the funds themselves, and they have complete discretion over how they use those funds. And so, therefore, you know, just teaches them, I guess, the lesson that I learned is having having a job, having a, or, you know, having a side gig of some sort allows them to, 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 to have their own savings, and their own savings give them um, a degree of freedom. And with those savings, they can help others, but they can also help themselves. So I think that's a lesson. And then finally, look, I mean, just like, you know, we're an industry household. So when my, it's my, my, my husband's a private investor. And so when they walk into the office, they see these screens flashing and, you know, and they ask, what is this share? or What is this currency? Or, you know, could we be invested in it? And the answer is, unfortunately for them, is they can't have a real investment account because I'm very heavily regulated in my job. But they do a lot of paper trading. So when they learn about Elon Musk or they learn about, you know, um, a particular 
influencer or the Jenners or whatever random thing they're learning, or Travis Scott, I think, is the recent thing. Um, you know, they learn about how does this person make money? What is their company? Could we follow their company? If I bought one share of this company or that company, how does that translate? So they do do a lot of that, and that comes from being part of, I guess, a financial family. That's awesome. No, I really, uh, really appreciate uh, the chat with you, Julia. I, I know we're running out of time, but um, yeah, it was really awesome to speak to you. I know I had like a thousand more questions, but uh, I think hopefully maybe in the future we can do this again and uh, and, and, and continue that discussion. But uh, really, really appreciate you, you being with us today. Um, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to speak to you today and I hope we get another chance. That's it for the show this week. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe and leave us a review. The reviews really help us and we love reading your comments as well. In Your Best Interest is hosted by me, Philip Müller. We're produced by Stashaway and we're mixed by Mo Ramley.